happening this morning. I don't know if you feel it. I feel it. It may just be where I am personally in my life, but it feels like a special place, like these thin places where the veil between heaven and earth, between the sacred and the earthly meet, and you recognize the holiness of the moment. And I think that that is always available to us, and yet we don't always recognize it. We aren't always aware that we should constantly be in places where we take off our feet, our shoes, and just have our feet because this is holy ground. And it feels like that this morning, at least to me, I hope for you as well. We're talking about worship today. Progressive Christianity is, as we were kind of coming down the home stretch on the series, we thought there are some things like uh, prayer, worship. Uh, we have another coming up, uh, missions, missions and event, framing the whole idea of what is missions, what is evangelism. Um, and worship, it seemed appropriate that you've been over our worship and arts and music for the last six years that you would take the lead on this. Um, but I think it's incredibly appropriate because one of the linchpins of what we do as Christians is we gather. And we've called this, what we're doing this Sunday morning, we've called this corporate worship for, that really is probably a term that has evolved in the last hundred years. I mean, even in the New Testament, their gatherings weren't called worship gatherings or corporate worship. The earliest church gathered uh, house to house, and they studied the apostles' doctrine. They broke bread. They had all things common. They took care of one another. And I think by the time you get into the literature of Paul, they did begin to sing songs together and psalms. But really, the early church that was uh, dominantly in especially Judea, Jewish, those people, those Christians were still Jewish, so they still went to the synagogue, or they went up to the temple, uh, and they worshiped there. But the whole idea of worship, the only thing that I would like to say in kind of throwing it to you is I think, I think worship centrally is driven by our view of God. Um, this morning when I was reflecting on the idea of worship, in the Hebrew scripture, Worship, there's much to say about this, but I think if you just kind of summarized it, in the Hebrew text, worship was this idea of bowing low. And, and the whole idea of bowing low or making obeisance was driven by that a lesser has come into the presence of a greater. And so when we came into the presence of God, we immediately bowed low. And we brought ourselves as low to the earth as possible because somehow in describing ourselves as low, we were conversely describing God as high. The lower we could make ourselves to some degree, the more we were elevating God. Interestingly, as we made the transition and as Jesus came and began saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When Jesus came saying, you don't have anything to fear, and he began to um, really illumine for us and make clearer for us who God was. Uh, in the New Testament literature that surrounds Jesus, the, the words did not mean to bow low. Literally, the chief word that's used over and over again in the New Testament, proskuneo, literally meant to kiss toward. So I just think it's interesting, in the Hebrew scriptures, it was to bow toward. In the Hebrew scriptures, it was to get as low as you can in perspective to. And then Jesus brought this idea of kissing towards. 
And he even said that when one day he was sitting with a lot of Pharisees and religious leaders and a woman, evidently a woman of ill repute, some think it was Mary Magdalene. And this woman comes into the room where Jesus was, last place in the world she would actually want to be with a bunch of ministers, priests, preachers, religious leaders. And the Bible said while they're in the middle of this religious conversation, she literally gets down at his feet, lets down her hair, and has this ointment and begins to bathe his feet. And mingling with the oil was her own tears, and her tears are dripping down, just splattering on his feet. And the Pharisees were undone by this. It was a gross um, infringement of male-female contact. And if this woman was indeed a person of ill repute in the town, uh, that heightened this reality. And here she is at Jesus' feet. And they didn't even say anything externally, but the Bible says that Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart. And he looked at them, and he said to them, um, this woman, since she has come into my presence, has not ceased to cry, to bathe my feet, not only with ointment, but with her tears. And then he said to them, King James language, he said, and thou gavest me no kiss. What a lovely phrase. Thou gavest me no kiss. And then he explained to them, the one who's forgiven much loves much. And so that idea of kissing towards, that idea of that idea of moving intimately towards someone who has done something beautiful and wonderful for you and in their very character you esteem them and revere them. I think that's still very central to the idea of worship. What has worn thin for me, and I'll throw this to you, what has worn thin for me is the idea that God created human beings for the sole purpose of telling him how wonderful telling God how wonderful God is, that somehow God turned into, in my growing up days, God turned into this megalomaniac narcissist who sits on the throne as we sing, and he leans back and says, could you run through that one more time? <laughs> wonderful, great, majestic, superlative, supernal, all that stuff, and God's just sitting up there saying, oh, that's why I had you. And that has worn thin for me, this idea that God just wants us standing on our tiptoes explaining and we're a heavenly choir. Because I, I think the ancient idea of worship was the divine presence makes us go low. And yet Jesus flipped that. The divine presence actually elevates us. And the old southern gospel idea was one day we're going to get there and when we get around that throne, we're just going to sing around that throne for a thousand years. That's not what Jesus said. He said, to him that overcomes, to her that overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So there's this sense of elevating where Jesus is not, you're my heavenly choir, four parts. Jesus is saying, I'll no longer call you servant, I'll call you friend. And there is this elevation. So that's my thoughts, and I'm really looking forward you've to you. You've stolen a lot of the good stuff out of this message right here. So What'd you say? Thanks a lot. What'd so you, you say? You've stolen a lot of my, my big climactic moment. You just gave it. It's fine. Ready? <laughs> That's what happens. 
<laughs> so, come back, please come back. I know I want you to add a lot, but I think that heavenly choir idea, that, that's where I wanted to start, was we have it, most of us grew up with this idea, not only now are we supposed to be this heavenly choir praising and singing to God, but after death, when we get to heaven, that's where we'll end up. And in fact, the difference would be, no, we're going to be end up divinely at union with God, in the throne with God. And that just changes your whole perspective. And the more I thought about talking about worship, it just simply comes back to what our view of God is and what our view of Jesus is. And so we're going to maybe reiterate some stuff this morning that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. But for some of you that are new, um, you might enjoy it. But Alexander Schmemann is this Greek Orthodox priest and author, and he wrote this beautiful book called For the Life of the World. And um, he says in that book, the world has fallen because it has fallen away from the awareness that God is all in all. We have accepted the reduction of God to an area called sacred as opposed to the world as profane. And once again, it's, it's the idea that there is a difference, and yet what we have been trying to say and what we feel in our hearts and, and think with our minds is that no, all of life is sacred that God is in every bit of this. See, we were taught to think then that sacrament as defined as a part of the church and within the church, but what I want us to think about this morning is that the church that we are ourselves supposed to be a sacrament to the world, a way that grace could be distributed for us to be truly the hands and feet of Christ, which we talk about a lot. We should be the proclamation of joy to the world coming into this Christmas season. We should be that joy that lasts all year long for the world around us. Um, I want to go back to a few of the words. Um, liturgy, some of you might think of this word liturgy and be familiar with it. You think of um, some of you grew up in more liturgical churches, and that's typically high churches, the mainline churches, or non-liturgical churches. But this word liturgy, the original Greek word liturgia, it meant an action by which a group of people become something corporately which they had not been as mere um, individuals. It was a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Um, it also also meant this function or this ministry of a man or woman or a group on behalf or interest of the whole community. So what the church did, their liturgy, their service was on behalf of the whole community, um, the priests, then, then uh, it would play out then in their prayers and then their sacrificial offerings to God. It became this gift or this benefaction for the relief of the needy. So the church actually was the liturgy, which he just spoke of, the early church. And that speaks to that our worship then is the way that we are called to live. And then this worship service, this corporate thing that we get together and do weekly, it should be our response to God, and it should set us up in how to live then accordingly our lives throughout the rest of the week. Um, one example in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 11 through 12, um, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Such generosity pros, uh, gives thanksgiving then to God through us. Your ministry of service to God's people, it's not only meeting their needs, but it's also multiplying in many ways the expressions of thanksgiving to God. See, once we start meeting the needs of this world, then we in turn become a gracious people, and the people that are receiving become a gracious people as well. Um, and so the words that we're talking about, these words for worship in the Hebrew, it was the word shaka. Is that how you pronounce that? Close enough. 
close enough, good deal, and meant this thing again to bow down, to depress, to um, prostrate oneself. And then the Greek word that he's speaking of, um, yes, the first definition that I found was that to, to kiss the hand, to kiss towards, but it also in, in more definitions said it would also mean to kneel or to pro prostrate oneself again. And I want us to think about again that our very idea that most of us grew up with, again, was in order that we needed to uh, bow down, um, um, that we were choosing in our words and in our songs to make ourselves glory to, uh, lower, to proclaim that we are unworthy and thus God was worthy. How many of you, if you think about the songs that you sang in the churches that you came from, in the church that I grew up in, in a lot of our hymns, we are proclaiming loudly in turn that we are first unworthy and then that God is worthy. Think about the songs that you sing. We are first unworthy so that God then can become worthy. And all of that comes out of this idea, though, of who we think of as who God is. And I was with Brian McLaren this weekend. He was over at Second Presbyterian, and a couple of you were over there with us. But he spent this whole um, weekend sort of talking about the Bible and how we use Scripture, but sort of going over, again, what our view of God is and how that shapes everything that we do. And so if we'll remember that in Scripture and in much of our history, their view of God was that God, again, was separate than humans, was separate than us, that God was holy and couldn't be with us in our evilness or our wickedness or our sin. And so we've seen and talked about then all these things become instituted. Their weekly sacrifices are ways for them to choose to appease this God. They are choosing to sacrifice because they think then that they need to appease God. And so they would do these rituals. They would have burnt offerings and peace offerings, sin and guilt offerings. They're all sacrifices, sacrificing animals, again, to appease God. They thought that God was unhappy with them, and thus they needed to appease God. And so then we come to Jesus. Jesus finally steps into the scene, and some would say that the cross, the very cross, was an indictment against that view of the violent God. That Jesus was saying, I'm not trying to continue this penal substitutionary atonement, this idea that I have come to appease God's wrath towards you. No, maybe Jesus was trying to move us away from this line of thinking. Maybe Jesus was trying to show us that God's posture towards humanity, all of humanity, is one of nonviolence. It is not one of wrath. It is one of love. And thus Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. See, we thought, I thought growing up that the cross, that this became, um, this is my body, those words were, this is my body given as a penal substitutionary atonement for you, you and your sin. I can't be with you in your sin. So Jesus dying was a way then to make God happy with me, was a way that God then could see me. Literally someone on Facebook just this morning, oh, I've had a doozy on Facebook this week with some people. Some of you were privileged to see that and like it and comment with me. <laughs> but some people, so, some of our theologies, and I, I had this theology, but it was that God literally can't look on you without that blood of Jesus between us because God can't handle us in our sinful nature. But what if instead, what if in Jesus saying, this is my body for you, what if Jesus was saying, this is my body given to cure you? this violent way that we think that we need to be and you think that God is? What if, in essence, Jesus is saying that our trouble and our sin, this desire to control things, that that's in our nature, and, but Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to not choose control. I'm going to give myself away, my body given then to cure you and to cure the ways of this world. So Jesus died for our sins. 
uh, McLaren gave this analogy. So when we say, I got a speeding ticket, uh, a $200, uh, $250 speeding ticket, um, I was given it for speeding. That for does not mean as uh, uh, atonement. It does not mean a substitution for. It means in results of speeding as a consequence of speeding. And so what if Jesus died for our sins as a consequence for the ways that our actions were and for the violence of the world at the time? And then Jesus says this beautiful, weird thing, take then and eat my body and my blood. We partook of communion this morning. And Jesus is saying then, you, as you do this, you are becoming my blood and my body, meaning this thing, this idea of peace and love and nonviolence, this thing will continue. And I'm giving a lot of background because I think we need to understand then what this sacrifice of worship means. And so sacrifice, it seems that God, um, in Romans 12:1, God, what God is interested in is a living sacrifice not a dead sacrifice, not a dead animal, not for more blood to be shed. Uh, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then Paul goes on to talk about what that looks like. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what the will of God is, what is good and what is acceptable. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly than you ought to think. Be sober. Use sober judgment. Um, for as in one body, we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we, we are, who are many, are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members of one another. We have gifts then that we offer, gifts of prophecy, gifts of faith, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, generosity, leaders, diligence, compassionate, cheerfulness. It goes on to say, and he's explaining what this living sacrifice is then, what this spiritual act of worship is. Let us be genuine. Let us hold fast to what is good. Let us love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in the spirit. Serve God. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere with prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. It just goes on and on. He's saying this, this is what God wants. This is our spiritual act of worship. And so we've thought again that worship was this bowing low because we were unworthy and God is worthy. But what we saw time after time in scriptures, it's in there and it plays out that Often when people came face to face with the Spirit of God or with Jesus, they would bow low. And the very first thing that God would say to them, do you know what it is? He said, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so Stan already said it, but we kept thinking we need to go down. And Jesus' whole mission, Jesus came low to be with us. Jesus condescended to this earth so that we would, in fact, know who we are and understand then what our call and our duty was. And so worship then is the receiving of God's lifting of us. Hmm. We say over and over and over on Sundays, you are the beloved of God. And I'm saying it so some of us might finally receive it. 
we might finally receive it, that God would look down and say, you are perfect in all of your ways. I twisted that this morning intentionally, not that we don't mess up, not that we don't fail, but at the core of who you are, God's saying, I made you and I love you. Worship then is receiving this lifting up of us. There's that beautiful quote that says, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. Fully alive, that is the glory of God. The beauty of God then is the beauty of love. And that's why anything that you see beautiful in this world, any uh, uh, things whisper to us, there are hints and there are clues and there are suggestions of God all over the place that we would be reminded that God is the ground of all being. And then that calls forth from us then, this worship then, once we receive it, it calls forth gratitude and it calls forth adoration. Um, I think then we say, you know, I don't, we don't need to sing. God's not this narcissist that needs us to say over and over and over, you're a good, good father. But even if he doesn't need it, I think it's proper and good to finally get to a place where I know who I am and I recognize who God is. And then we sing from that same heart with a new intention. See, the early church, um, they had this phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, which specifically meant? We, essentially, we believe what we pray, and we pray what we believe. So, so our liturgy was an expression of our beliefs, and our beliefs were an expression of our liturgy. We worshipped our beliefs. And they did that predominantly, right, because they couldn't read. They didn't have scripture. They didn't have these things. And so the service, the songs that they sang, they held much weight because they were giving a spiritual formation through music and through prayers. And that's why I try so intentionally to work on the words that you would choose to say together when you walk in this room and the words that we would choose to sing together. Because ultimately what we are saying is what we want you to believe, what you are praying and what you are singing. We want that to be the core of our convictions about who God is and who we are in the world. Um, the church, again, we are supposed to be the sacrament then to the world, the instrument in which the kingdom of God is played out in daily lives. We are called, we talk about this, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are this royal priesthood, each and every one of us. And as a priest, it is our call then to represent, to represent Christ to the world and Christ is our peace, Christ is our reconciler, Christ is our communion, and so that is what we are called to do. And then this worship service, this thing that we do on Sundays, this then becomes a celebration of all that life is. I hope you come in here and you are encouraged and you are challenged. And so we use things like art and music. Um, there's this great quote by N.T. Wright. He says, church music is meant to be a silver chalice in which the strong wine of God's love is given to the rest of us. It is meant to be a burnished brazier or kettle which allows the congregation to warm themselves at God's fire. Oh, that is my heart for these Sunday mornings when we join together together. Um, Brian McLaren, he wrote this letter years back, um, and it was an, an open letter to worship leaders, and he said a lot of wonderful critiques that, um, especially a few years ago, were very true of the worship music industry and of, of worship leaders in general and artists, and one of the things he said was some of our lyrics are embarrassing, um, embarrassingly personalistic about Jesus and me. There are lots of Jesus is my boyfriend types of songs, right? They get very 
ooey gooey and gushy and we oh, we tend to not try to sing those songs here um, not because I think it's not beautiful for us to understand that there is beauty and emotion and beauty and recognizing and loving on God but I think we focus for so long just on those things it became a much more simply romantic thing and us not to understand that this is supposed to be how we live our lives that worship isn't music that we do on Sunday mornings that worship is this life um, another man Brian Sriracho he wrote this book, Marks of Progressive Christian Worship, and he says things like, we need vertical songs in our, in our services that help us lift our voices in heartfelt praise and gratitude to God. And then we also need horizontal songs that encourage us to live out our faith with integrity and with passion, songs that help us express our sadness and our pain. Songs that also help us express our joy and our longing. Songs that help us express our doubts Oh, we need some room and some space to lament and to express our doubts and that be a part of our faith. And then we need to be able to sing some songs and pray some prayers and have some space where we boldly proclaim our convictions and we boldly remind ourselves that we are called in loving relationship with others and to do the work of justice and peace. Um, within our music, too, we need a more inclusive language of God. We've talked about this a lot, and that's why I wanted us to sing that song during the offering, God our Father and God our Mother. There's nothing wrong with God, calling God our Father if we can also in turn recognize that God is also Mother at times and shares those same qualities that God is actually not a gender here. And so we're not trying to get rid of all the Father words or the He words, as long as you can also have some room for Mother in that as well and understand again that God is so much broader um, than we've ever imagined. And so we need that inclusive language. We need to sing songs of extravagant welcome and love for all people, which we try to do here. Um, we don't want to emphasize, again, um, just the penal substitutionary atonement. And I don't know if we want to talk about this a little bit. It's not that we don't want to sing about the blood of God, but it's that most of the songs and the hymns that speak directly of the blood, they're speaking of that appeasing God. And so it gets a little bit confusing then when we try to sing it. We need to write new songs towards that. Yeah, the blood of Jesus is the life of Jesus. And what we see in the cross, I think the, the longer we live with the cross, we don't see the wrath of God being executed against humanity. We see the wrath of humanity being executed against God. And the greater thing about the blood of Jesus, it's, it's, the, it's the willingness of God to suffer at the hands of man as opposed to um, man suffering at the hands of God and the submitted God, the subjected God. So there's lots about the blood of Jesus that is incredibly life-giving to us, and we lift that and we elevate that. The issue that has always been central from the times of Paul, times of Augustine, Anselm, the question has always been, why the blood of Jesus? And you got into it a moment ago with the, the definition of the word for. Um, is the blood of Jesus the execution of God so that God has capacity to be with us? No. Uh, the blood of Jesus is the incredibly powerful and clear indication that God has always been with us, that his blood is our blood, that his blood is in us and cleansing us continually. So I think it's just, it, it's not an overreaction, it's just a bit of a tweak, which the church has always been doing as we grow and develop in our view of God. Yeah, another thing that we often 
I'm intentionally choosing not to do is portray this idea of Rambo Jesus or macho God that's out to terrorize, you know, the world. We grew up with a lot of songs, and I challenge you to go back and think through some of the songs and the hymnals that you grew up with. And again, no indictment to the church in the past. That is, that's where we've come from and, and everything that we've grown out of and, and not be, would not be here today without that. But we have many of these songs that proclaim, and I've said it before, like, our God is the best God. Our God will basically beat up your God. And it's like, no, that's playground talk because you don't imagine Jesus posturing himself like that. And therefore, that's not who we are and who we're going to sing or who I want to portray to you um, either. Um, there's this great quote by Rudolph Barrow, and he says, when the forms of an old culture are dying, the new culture is created by a few people who are not afraid to be insecure. Hmm who are not afraid to be insecure. And so we try a lot of things here, not because we think that they are the right way or they will make up new, uh, they're gonna be the new way that all the churches in the world will follow, but we're not afraid to be insecure. We're not afraid to push into our humanity and to give some space. And we've talked about it. We're gonna try to start creating space for silence with which tons of churches already do. And we are catching up to that. But we're gonna try some new ways that maybe you and I aren't necessarily uncomfortable with in this moment, but I want us to have some freedom um, to be able to do that and to move in those places. I read this great, great quote again. I'm such a reader. Whenever I prepare for these sermons, I get like eight books, and I'm so annoyed because he just walks in and says it all. Um, I've worked all week. I'm really, I'm, it, I mean that as a compliment. Seriously. <laughs> I really do. I'm jealous that I just, I'm, you're so many years ahead of preaching, so it takes me a lot longer. You, but had, I have, you, you had fun on Facebook this week? Oh my gosh. Have you ever thought about just posting about when you go to a barbecue place or something like that? <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. What, what were you saying? <laughs> Listen, Facebook can do good. I need to say that. Sometimes it looks like there's a lot of bad happening on true, my page. True that. There's also a lot of good. I get some beautiful messages. Okay. Anyways, this great quote I, I read, it's Shmaimon again. If you have not read this book, um, and he's not necessarily a, a progressive Christian, but he has such, there is such truth in this book. So I encourage you to read it. Um, but he said, we in the modern West have forgotten how to celebrate probably because we've forgotten why we celebrate. We've forgotten why we celebrate. See, people who get in touch with God, when we finally get this, who we are and who God is, then we are a people then who will become ones that celebrate and ones that heal. Oh, we will be the ones that go out and heal the world and touch the world and see the hurting and see the dying and try to step in and do something and be the hands and feet. Um, so we are this joy, again, this joy to the world, but then we want to in turn have um, for others to have joy as well with us. Our world is full of people, full of people who are thirsty for gentleness they are thirsty for kindness, for knowing that they matter. And that welcome is our work. That welcome is our work. What we believe about God then shows how we would respond to the world. And I pray what we are learning, all of us corporately here, uh, of who God is and who we are and who then the world is as well, this beloved God. So let us be ones of reconciliation, of love and healing and comfort, um, because we believe that is the heart of God. I hope that this hour... In 20 or 30 minutes, depending on what Sunday it is, 
I hope it's where you find your bearings again. I hope it's where we can reground ourselves in God. I hope that this then becomes this anecdote to fear, that we remember that God is with us, that God feels all the things that we feel and that God walks with us through each and every step of it. Um, let our way then of going and confronting the world, the good news that we tell, let it be one of love. Oh, let it be the way of love. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He gave us a truthful way of living, and that is what we are called to do and what I hope this Sunday morning, this time, encourages you to go and do. Um, I have a prayer that I want to read, but do you? I would simply, I would simply say to all of us, in terms of, in terms of worship, worship is so much the disposition of my heart toward God. And I would ask a really simple question of all of us, and I think it's a really great exercise. Uh, if you just work like you're with a psychiatrist and you're looking at the ink blots, just kind of a, a visceral first blush response, what is your first disposition, your first psychological disposition, emotional disposition toward God? When you hear, when you hear about the divine and you think about the divine as other, what is your first disposition toward God? What is that first knee-jerk reaction? I think that will say, I think that will tell you a lot if you really sort that through. And I don't know how many of you have just stopped and just thought about that. For me, at this point in my life, my first blush, emotion, and response is gratitude. That's, that's where I am. It hasn't always been where I was. I remember when my first blush response was a flinch. I remember when my first blush response was fear. Um, someone says, well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, maybe it's the beginning, but it's sure not the end. And it's not the maturation of wisdom. As a matter of fact, 1 John says, when love finally matures, it will cast out all fear. So there's this maturation of our disposition toward God. And my disposition, it's not even love so much. Sometimes the divine is so wholly, completely other that uh, the, the, the romancing boyfriend, girlfriend Jesus is just not my disposition anymore. It's just, that almost demeans the vastness and the mystery of all of this. But gratitude. As Beekner says, that I who might not have been am. And in that gratitude, my, my sense of God is, is mutuality and sharedness. An absolute, if God is indeed transcendent, God is transcendent in God's absolute unwillingness to be separate from us. Transcendent used to mean that God was distant. Now transcendent means God is holy and completely other and that otherness is completely defined by God's willingness to be with us and God's unwillingness to be separate from us. So I sense a real sharedness of God. I, I finally moved from standing on my tiptoes trying to talk to God to hearing God in a gentle whisper say, who are you hollering at? And where are you looking? And what are you invoking? And what are you calling down? Come home to yourself where I've always lived. And so there's this real sense of gratitude and sharedness, and that would be my disposition of worship, awe, reverence, sharedness. And I would say this about, 
I, I would say for all of you, just do that exercise. And there's no right or wrong there, it's where you are. Corporate worship for me, I, I realize that corporate worship automatically indicates when I say corporate, that I get away from the highly stylized, embarrassingly personalistic. C.S. Lewis said, I sat as a snob in church, listening to their hymns. They were sixth-rate poetry set to seventh-rate music. And I demeaned them. And then one day, I looked across the aisle at a lady, and I realized as that simple woman reached out to the divine and called upon God that I wasn't worthy to even get down and unlatch her shoes. And corporate, corporate is a big part of our life as the human family. Um, that, that idea of this service, doing my religious life in community, it's not all about me. It's amazing how we have become bon vivants, connoisseurs, how our palates have become so refined that we are so demanding of the kind of music we want, the temperature we want. The and there are so many churches to go to around that if, if Target doesn't do it, you can go to Walmart and you can just keep bouncing around and never realize that part of corporate is that the other might be blessed, that the other might receive. Ultimately, Ultimately, corporate worship for me is recognizing that this is not all about me. And, and also, in that recognition, the psalmist said that God, and I, I'll ask you about this because it may not be this way for some of you, God is magnified in the midst of the congregation. Listen, there's some of you that are so burned out on church. I was talking to a friend of mine this week and he was apologizing for not coming to church and I said, listen, I get it, been there, may be there again. I, I have no legalistic sense that God has a ledger and he's checking off your names for attendance today. I told my friend, corporate worship is not all there is to church and community. I do think that community is, is necessary for spirituality. I don't know that Sunday morning at 10 o'clock doing this is absolutely necessary. It may be absolutely necessary in seasons in your life not to do it. I had a whole season of about a year that it advantaged me greatly to not do this. This had gotten so tangled up in my vocation and there was so much to untangle that I didn't come back until I gently could come back and appreciate. If this nurtures your soul and if it adds to your flourishing, then this is a good part of your life. If it hurts you and it makes you angry and it makes you tense, um, there are reasons for that. Search them through. That might be good work for you to do. Find another place. I found the 12-step world. And I literally, in the end, said that it became my church. And then I started thinking, I'm calling it my church. There's still something about church that even the good thing that it had become became my church to me. There's a reason you call it church, because there's goodness here. David said, finally, the Lord is magnified in the midst of the congregation. Magnification does not make something bigger. It just allows you to see it more clearly. When you put something beneath a magnifying lens, it doesn't change. It simply is seen clearer by you. And for me, I have evolved back around to where all of the moving parts of this and all of the humanity that 
infiltrates every communal act of humanity, whether it's the PTA at Clovercroft Elementary or the Brentwood Civitan Soccer Club. Wherever there's a bunch of humans, there's a bunch of mess. But in the midst of that mess, I can say for me finally, you and I were sitting back there talking about hard times and being kind of whatever, not having our minds right, and you come out here and you have a thin place. Thin places are not in spaces, thin places are here. And there are some spaces that provoke those thin places. And all we want to do here is not be the fullness of your entire act of worship. All we want to do here is stimulate you in such a way, nurture you in such a way that what happens here is a small sacrament of what happens the rest of the week. And if you're constantly leaving church mad, and if you're constantly leaving church with your blood pressure up, and if you're coming in here and it feels wrong, take a break, sort through, come back gently, find a place, don't expect too much. The thing that's aggravating you today, the song that you didn't like, look down the row, somebody's being blessed, it's not all about you. That's like when people say, well, I don't need a life group. Have you ever thought a life group needed you? I got plenty of friends. Well, have you ever thought about the people who might need you? That's, so Melissa is a curator. She's so much more than a song leader. She's a curator. That's why she's over the entire service. She curates something that is not the height of our week. It should be the, it should be the launching pad of our week, sacramentally projecting us. And so if you go from here thinking about how to diminish suffering and how to think positively about God and how to introspect and even ask yourself how do I feel about God and maybe even reflect today on why church bugs you so much that's good spiritual work that's worship in a holistic sense I would love just before we go quickly I since you grew up in a very charismatic church and you and I are both still very emotive I remember this moment, we were in a van, there was a group of us with Timothy's Gift in Ohio headed up to Ron's home church, and we were doing a concert, talking about prison up there, and Randy was with us, I don't know where Randy is, Randy, in case you haven't noticed, Randy's the one up here, he's super Pentecostal, super, if I, he had a handkerchief, he'd have it out all the time, <laughs> and I love it. We love him for it. But Randy and Stan and I were sort of in the back seat, and we were just pulling up old songs, like the songs that used to move us and get us. And I put on one of my favorites. It's, uh, it was a Yolanda Adams song. And man, she's just one of my favorite singers. But this song, it does not carry necessarily the theology of where I am currently. But we put on the song, and I remember you were sort of right in front of us. And I know it doesn't carry the theology that you hold anymore but there were just tears falling down your face and I just remember and I didn't bother you about it I could have like ragged you about it I, but tried, I, didn't. To, I tried for y'all not to see it because I, I didn't want to confuse you <laughs> but I did see it but I think that's the beauty of sort of starting with this for one reason and then coming back to this then with all new reasons and sort of capturing the heart of it I don't know if you want to explain listening to her listening to that black gospel expression reminded me um, the reason that I weep in moments like that is the same reason that I can go back to a little United Pentecostal church where I grew up and not be angry there anymore when I 
first started circling back around to those moments and allowing myself to cry, I wondered why I was crying. I literally heard the voices that said, well, the reason you're crying is because you're backslid and God's calling you home. Right? You ever thought that? I thought, here I am, up here, she's got a Yolanda Adams song, this is going to be the moment when I repent and <laughs> go back. And, and, and it confused me for a long time. It confused you, it confused me. I finally realized that it was not being called home. It was a tribal instinct inside of me. It was a sentimental, nostalgic, tribal instinct that was more than sentiment and nostalgia. It took me back and allowed me to realize that those places were not bad, they were good. They were very good. As, as Anne Lamott said, each of those places were lily pads across the bog of doubt and fear. None of them capable of sustaining me for eternity, but each of them sustaining me until the next lily pad came. And all the way he romanced me leading me across that bog. And so those moments for me are healing moments for me because I look back and I never feel like, well, I was all wrong and now I'm all right because I'm tremendously short of what probably even 20 years from now will be for me. But each moment has been good. Each moment has been blessed. Each moment has been living water in spite of some of the toxins that may have been involved. And I can go back now and I can have those tribal moments and reflect. Because one of the chief things that Jesus will say in your life, when you really have Jesus, when you really have the Jesus that came to us in Christ, in the Christ, the Messiah, was we have him in phases. He's here for a while with his disciples. He, he's on earth as a carpenter and then he's on earth as a healer. And then he dies, and he's off of the earth, and then he comes back as a resurrected Lord, and then he leaves the resurrected thing, and he does the ascending thing, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and then eternity projects him as moving back into that throne. Even Jesus is going through phases. If Jesus is going through phases, then I can go through phases with Jesus. And in each of those phases, you remember the resurrected Lord when Mary knew it was him, she dug her fingers into him and said, you're never getting away from me again. Well, if Jesus is really Jesus, he'll get away from you over and over again because he needs to. Because each Jesus, each Jesus is a fraction of the full Jesus. And the last thing he said to Mary as she embraced him in worship you talk about kissing toward. She wrapped her arms around the resurrected Lord, and instead of Jesus saying, this is it, this is the coup de grace, this is all there will ever be, let's stay here in this moment, Jesus looked at her, relishing the moment, and said, enough now, let me go. Those are some of the most undervalued words that Jesus ever spoke, and they are some of the most powerful words of God to you. God will continually because of the limitation of your grasp, tell you to let go. And letting go of Jesus is one of the most tremendous ways to have God. And that's worship. And so I can look back at those moments and I can weep and I can feel a fullness because I remember what God felt like there. And it was good. 
and it's even more now, and I suspect it will even be more in the future. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Amen. Can we stand? I'd love it if you could just repeat these lines and us pray this together over <coughs> ourselves. Say this, God within me. God within me. God without. God without. How shall I ever be in doubt? How shall I ever be in doubt? There is not a place. There is not a place. Where I may go. Where I may go. And not there see. And not there see. God's face. God's face. I am God's vision. I am God's vision. And God's ears. And God's ears. So through the harvest. So through the harvest. Of my years. My years. I am the sower. I am a sower. And the sown. And the sown. God's self unfolding. God's self unfolding. And God's own. And God's own. Did you say amen?